author of Ghost Squad, and this is Write or Die. Yay! <laughs> I don't know why I'm always happy when we do the intro smoothly. Because <laughs> it almost never goes smoothly, because it's something always gets cut off. It's always a dilemma. Also, we forgot to do it for like a solid year. So I <laughs> feel The like... best was when someone tweeted at us and they were like, there's two of you? <laughs> And I'm like, who do you think we're talking to in the beginning? <laughs> Ourselves. That's how you identify yourself as a skipper. <laughs> yeah, you're a skipper. You're skipping. <laughs> um, gosh, that's so funny. But uh, I don't even know what week it is. I'm so – my brain is, like, not functioning right now. But, Yeah. I mean, in a good way, because I've been, like, super duper busy with Diverse mm, Book Fest, yeah. which is great. Yeah, and so exciting because it's fully funded thanks to Yay! all of the amazing donations and the fundraiser. The It was just really great. It was so amazing. And, mm. like, yeah, we had that auction and so many people donated things. But then a lot of people bid and... And, and people were bidding, like, a lot. And I started getting, like, stressed out. I was just like, do they know how much they're bidding? And people were like, yes, they are adult people. Like, they understand what an auction means. <laughs> and honestly, I do feel like people bid more because it's for a good cause. So I, I just was really happy about that. It was really great to see. Yeah, for sure. But, yeah, that that was really fun. And then also I'm, like, drafting something new. What's been going on with you? Some cool stuff that I can't really talk about. And then also turn... What? I said that's such a publishing thing. It is. And it's kind of annoying, but I don't know how else to describe it. So deal with it. And and also I just turned in another middle grade book to my agent and did revisions on it. So I'm really excited about that. Yay! I'm going to get started on my graphic novel revision soon as well. So just like a little short, like couple day breaks right now to celebrate my birthday and stuff. And yeah. Yes. Happy early birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Well, very by the time much. this goes out, it'll be post your birthday. But, but it's always my birthday when you really fine. think about it. Yeah, it's always. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if people want to like send Clarabelle gifts still, then no, that's fine too. Don't do that. <laughs> Your gift to <laughs> your 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 gift to me can be pre-ordering Ghost Squad. How about that? Oh yeah, that's a good gift. Pre-order the prerequisite twenty copies of Ghost Squad for Clarabelle's birthday. Yes, the one that you're all required to order in order to be listening to this right now. Your ear holes are not entitled to any episodes of Write or Die until you <laughs> order twenty copies of Ghost Squad, twenty copies of Wicked Fox. It's gonna start getting expensive because we're gonna have more books. So I suggest everyone <laughs> saves up. Tax returns are coming. Just save a little bit. Remember that you have to buy our books. 20 copies. Prerequisite. <laughs> I do have a sequel coming out this year. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Oh, my gosh. It's so weird to think that I have another book coming out. It's like, I just I just wrote a book. Like, I just had a book coming out. I already did this. Yeah. But, yeah. It, it 
it's happening again. It's, it's such a it's such a dramatic like all consuming thing that I feel like the thought of it happening again like a year after, a couple months after must be maybe not overwhelming, maybe overwhelming, but sort of like like yeah, like surprising almost. Like again, like this again? Like we just <laughs> did this. <laughs> I just did this. I already I already put it back out in the world. Like <laughs> you expect me to do a whole other one? You know how much work that first one took? But no, it's gr- I mean, it's we're making jokes about it, but it's such an honor and it's so great. And I, I we talk about this all the time to, with each other, but like we're so grateful that we get to put out more books into the world and that we both have contracts for more than one it's it is it is a bit of a privilege to be fair and I'm I'm glad that I get to have that perspective I actually you know we don't have we ever talked about debut groups on the podcast um maybe like in passing I don't think we've ever really gotten into it into it yeah I don't want to get too into it but but I'm sure a lot of you have heard that there are debut groups. Like once you announce that you're debuting, most of them are somewhere like on Facebook. I'm, I'm sure there's other places where the debut groups like hang out and chat. But I joined the Facebook one for 2019 and it gave me some really great perspective. To be fair, I wasn't super duper active in it, but I was I was in it and I would see conversations and it gave me really good perspective about what people were going through, things that people were going through that I wasn't or the things they were going through that I was and therefore I didn't feel alone. And it was really nice to have that and to have that comparison because writing and publishing can feel like a lonely process. Yeah. But, to, but to know that other people are, are going through something similar to you is um, is kind of a nice feeling. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess I'll say like, on the other side of the spectrum though is that comparison is like an evil aspect of publishing (laughs) yes yes for sure I I haven't really been in my debut group much and and part of that is because I was in one debut group and because my book got pushed I was in another one so like by the time it was time for me to be in like my actual debut group I was like I'm kind of over it (laughs) um (laughs) And, like, in the 2019 debut group, there was a lot of, like, panicking. Like, I went on Goodreads again, and I'm depressed, and I just couldn't take it. I was like, you gotta stop doing it then. So I just didn't really go in. But, yeah, they can be really helpful, and especially if you don't really have, like, a community around you. But, yeah, the flip side of that, anytime you're in, like, writing spaces, inevitably comparison is going to happen. Uh, yeah. I think that's a very human thing and it's a hard thing <laughs> to deal with in a healthy way w- without letting it get to you uh, and make you spiral like constantly, basically. Yeah. I mean, well, and the thing is, is that if you look at it objectively or as objectively as you can, like people deserve to shout about the positive things that are happening to them, especially in an industry like publishing. They deserve to be like, hey my book got optioned for a movie or like we sold foreign rights in like 10 territories or or anything like that or I'm gonna be sent on a tour there it it's nice that people are are able to celebrate these great things and it's also nice that they can celebrate it with other people who understand what that means right Mm -hmm. like you 
you say it to like your family and they're like, oh, it got option for a film. When's the movie coming out? And you're like, no, it's not <laughs> definitely going to become a movie, but it's still good news. And like, so it's good to have these publishing spaces where you can talk about those things. But then at the same time, I think we're all quite aware that when good news is shared, there's inevitably going to be people being like, oh, I really want that. And I don't have it. And I feel like shit now. Yeah. And and it sucks. And everyone goes through both ends of that. Like you are sharing your news and someone's sad or someone's sharing their news and you're sad. Mm. And I definitely went through it a lot. I mean, if only because I have like that mindset ingrained in me as an as an Asian kid of immigrants that like applied to colleges and needed to get into the best colleges (laughs) those kinds of things like the idea that like if people don't recognize the name of your college then you're not going to a good enough place like that's like a thing in my community and it sucks but it's also something that like I have come to realize is something that was kind of embedded into me and I do it sometimes now too Mm -hmm. I mean you know going on sub. I, I was telling one of my other friends who's also Asian American, I was like, it's going to be like when you apply to college and you like get into like your safety school first and then you're like, okay, but I, re- I'm happy about that, but I can't be fully happy because I really want to get into Harvard. Yeah. And she was like, oh my God, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> yeah. I was like, and it really freaking sucks because you are, you're some part of your brain doesn't let you be happy about the good thing that you already have because you, know you don't have the other best thing basically exactly but in publishing the insidious thing about it is that you th- is that there's always going to be another better thing mm-hmm. that you want yeah so you got to get over this mindset or else you'll never be happy yeah yeah for so sure it just sucks <laughs> yeah and it's also like it's also like the way by which you measure the rest of your career sometimes it could become like a sort of like a a like habit forming right um because like for for you with like your experience with college like college is so important for you and that's something that's like cultural and that like you couldn't escape from but it's still something that you talk about and that means something to you because it's been a thing that you focused on for so long right yep. and mm-hmm. I feel like if you do that with with comparisons and with like numbers games like if you let yourself sort of fall prey to obsessing over it all the time and not acknowledging that it's not healthy to do so um in terms of publishing then that's how it's going to be like for the rest of your career basically you know you're gonna you're gonna judge people based on those things you're gonna judge yourself based on those things and it's it's not it's not good for anybody involved really and when you do meet people that sort of like judge you based on how big your advance was or like try to like impress you by telling you their advance numbers or where you're getting published or treat you differently because you're being published with a smaller press. This has happened to a couple of my friends who have been published with like smaller presses and people treat them like second class citizens because of it. Yeah. And it's so dumb and it's so immature and it's so sort of like, it's real. it's kind of like pathetic. You know what I mean? Like you really shouldn't be treating somebody badly 
because of their path to publication. Every path to publication is valid. Every path to publication um, is difficult (laughs) and is worthy of celebration and to be proud of. Whether you're self-publishing, whether you are getting a huge uh, advance from a big publisher, everything is worth celebration and everything is worth respect um, from both the outside world and from yourself. I think you have to always be giving yourself credit for the things that you're doing and celebrating every little victory that you have and trying to focus on those things as opposed to the things that you don't have all the time because it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy to always focus on those things and it's just going to send you down like a really dangerous and unhealthy path I feel like yeah and I think it's really important to realize that writing a book is a really big accomplishment Mm -hmm. and then getting that book published is like an even bigger accomplishment so the fact that someone is getting their book published at all no matter the avenue of getting it published is a really big deal. And we should, we should be willing to celebrate that as a community because we know firsthand how hard it is to do that. And like my, I have a couple of uncles and cousins or whatever that are doctors. Cause we're, we're Asian. <laughs> That's one of the reasons. Kat's allowed to say that because she's Asian. I'm Asian. But, um, my one my one uncle has a has a joke and he says what do you call the person who graduates last in their class from the worst medical school what is it doctor <sighs> oh and, i get it right? yeah mm-hmm. right it's like yeah maybe you got like a you know, maybe you got a thousand dollar advance and maybe it's from a small tiny boutique pub- publisher but you still wrote a book and you're still being published and your book is still being read by people. So and you're an author. You get to call yourself an author. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge accomplishment. And like no one can take that away from you. And you should be proud of it. You know? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And also, like, it's totally human to compare yourself to others. Like, I think that there are different spectrums of, of this and like different like sort of levels of it. There are people who do it a lot. There are people who don't do it that much. But I think it happens to everyone at some point. It's unrealistic to not think that. Like, I am a very non-jealous uh, person. I, when it comes to my work, I'm very like sort of self-centered. I'm always just thinking about my own journey, but it happens to me too. Like I sometimes think like, why hasn't this happened to me? Like what's, I'll a perfect example of this, like in terms of things like starred reviews, right? Like Ghost Squad has gotten really great trade reviews, but none of them have been starred. And there's nothing wrong with that not happening. There's nothing wrong with not getting starred reviews, but in your head, what starts happening is you tell yourself like, well, what's wrong with my book? Is my book not special enough? Like, maybe my book is just mediocre. And you just start sort of going down this this spiral of thought, like this one thing can trigger all of these other things. And, and that happened to me recently. And you know, that had to do with all sorts of other things. Because if you're in a bad place mentally, if you're not working on other things and taking a rest, and maybe your mind is not occupied enough with like other things or hobbies or like fun things to do, you can start overthinking. And that and that's really what it is for me sometimes if I'm not keeping busy somehow my mind's gonna go to the dark place (laughs) so that it's like it's like even worse than the bad place yeah (laughs) it's the dark place and (laughs) and it's it's going to start to to like sort of 
fester and um, give credence to all of these self-doubts that everyone has as an author. And like when you're writing your book, before you have an agent, before you have a book deal, you, of course you have self-doubt. But then after when your book comes out and it's in the world and things actually happen, there are there are things that that lead to feeding into that self-doubt, right? So it becomes even worse because there's going to be failures. There's going to be things that you don't get. And everything that you don't get is like another sort of confirmation that that self-doubt was correct, even though that's like complete bullshit. But in your mind, that's what ends up happening. So it is very hard. It's very hard not to compare. It's very hard to not sort of fall down that hole. And there are some days where you just have to sit there and just be like, I'm going to be sad today. I'm going to be sad today about this. I'm going to give myself one day like Beyonce and then I'm going <laughs> to get back up and go back out there and I'm going to realize that what I, I did my best and I'm proud of what I did and I'm going to do even better the next time. Yeah. And I, I the thing is, is that I know that comparing yourselves to others around you is a hard thing to let go of, especially in publishing because there's really no rubric or standard of what success means. So you start to be like, okay, well, who do I consider successful? What do they have? Do I have what they have? Mm -hmm. Does that mean that I'm not successful if I don't have it? Right. And it's kind of a uh, an unending like cycle that's just like really unhealthy. Mm -hmm. But I understand why people get stuck in the cycle. I mean, I do myself. I, I still to this day do because I just debuted. Like I I know that like you guys hear Clarabella and me talking about things being like, listen, it's not that serious. <sighs> and it's really good that we can have these conversations. But I guarantee you that for as many times as you hear us saying this on the podcast, there are times behind the scenes where Clarabella and I are frantically texting each other going, no one likes my writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's, it's hard. And I, I, I don't think I know any author who is so Zen that they never, ever, ever compare themselves to other people. So don't feel bad that you do it. Right. But I will say that it's, you should constantly, just as we are constantly working on trying not to do it and trying right. to identify the moments when we start to do it. Yeah, because, definitely. Yeah, mm -hmm. It's really bad. And also I will say, sorry, I know I'm talking. A little no, no, a lot. no, no. This is all great. Um, I will say that I, I do think that the one of the biggest reasons why comparison is so is so inaccurate as a measure of like if you're doing well is because there are so many variables as a scientist I can tell you <laughs> that variables variables uh -oh. bastardize results and that and therefore if you are comparing your commercial like upmarket rom-com to a literary magical realism book that your best friend wrote mm -hmm. and you're saying oh well we both debuted in the same season in the same year and they got all of these awards and they're on second printing and why am I not it's because your books are so different that no one was ever going to treat them the same they had a completely different like journey they had a completely different marketing it's 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 so unfair to everybody involved for you to ever try to compare your work to other works. And I know that it's something that the industry kind of teaches you to do because we literally have comps. Yeah. <laughs> but like, <laughs> literally have literally. comps. Literally. But like, I could tell you for a fact that 
I've had multiple conversations with my editor and my marketing teams where they're like, we're going to try to change your comps. And each time they'll name books and I'm like, eh, I guess so. Literally, <laughs> I have never had a moment where they name comps and I'm like, that's exactly what my book is like. Never. Yeah. It's just hard. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there's always going to be there's always going to be someone who is doing better than than you in this world like no matter what the situation is in publishing in life you you will if you go looking for someone who can do better who's doing better you're gonna find that you're gonna find it yeah but if you if you look for happiness in your own work and validation in the things that you're doing and creating and having fun you can find that too Mm -hmm. it depends what you like go out to find right yeah so If you're most of the time looking for someone to compare yourself to, then I think the thing for you to do is to course correct, right? To course correct and to change that. Every single time that you are tempted to look up somebody's Amazon ranking or if they got, you know, invited to this place that you didn't get invited to, instead of doing that, why don't you look at something that you're proud of in terms of your own writing? Like a, even if it's a chapter that you wrote that you like or a line or a concept that you're excited for in the future, look to your own accomplishments for that like rush that you're looking for, that like really weird like stalkery rush that you're looking for. It's like <laughs> it's sort of like looking at your ex's Instagram page, right? Like you know you're going to get hurt, but you're still lurking. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> so don't do it, you know? Look at your take a selfie instead and admire your own beauty and I mean maybe that sounds a little (laughs) bit like self-centered but I really feel like it's to the benefit of keeping your focus on your own work and keeping um your eyes on your own paper like everybody always says I forgot what movie it was um I think it's head of state with Chris Rock which is one of my favorite movies ever because Bernie Mac is in it and there's one scene where he gets (laughs) off of a train and he just like like catapults himself to bitch slap one person who's trying to give him their mixtape and it's the funniest moment ever i just love it so much i think it's this movie i could be wrong but it's um there is a scene where uh, one of the characters is telling the other do you know why horses wear blinders when they run and she's explaining to him that the reason why is because if they, they aren't wearing blinders, then they're, they're going to be looking at their their competition and they're going to get thrown off. And I've always loved that because it's like, well, that makes so much sense. Like, you just have to keep your, your focus ahead and on your own race and not on what's on either side of you at all times. Um, so I think that's a really good way to look at publishing and your writing career and also watch head of state because it's like so funny (laughs) (laughs) the two lessons that you could take (laughs) yes keep your eyes on your own paper and watch head of state but yeah i mean i think that for anyone who is listening to this and is struggling with like struggling with comparison i i always talk about this but the person who has said the the smartest things about this conversation in the history of talking is holly black at her launch for cruel prince she was talking about how publishing is about longevity and not about who debuted first and the splashiest um and she talked about how a lot of people that she 
started with you know started off really big and like with a with a loud bang and some of them are still doing well but some of them stop publishing and it could be a kind of situation where someone starts off at a higher level and quote unquote and you know you can end up lapping them right it, it, you don't you never know the direction that your career is going to take and what what things are going to come what connections are going to happen that's always really important to remember that the that the goal is longe- longevity the goal is for you to have a long successful career not to be the first one to do things you know and then also yeah. in her episode her ghostober episode which we can link in the show notes the line the famous line jealousy can be good cuz it can show you what you want i think that's such a great way to spin those moments of ina- in in i'm sorry inadequacy yeah. for for you to sort of spin it in a in a healthier way to to redirect your efforts to try to work towards that thing rather than getting worked up um in an unhealthy way and being upset that you don't have it and it's it's a we're all works in progress, right? We're all trying and learning. And I think that it's important to sort of just recognize that and be t- take it easy on ourselves too. When we do have those moments of being down, it's totally normal. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the thing is, it it's such a, it's such a complicated conversation to have because on one end, it, people can say, okay, stop comparing yourselves to other people. Like keep your eyes on your own paper and everything like that. And, and, I think that there's always the chance that someone will take the any advice to like a weird tangential place, be like, mm. oh, okay, so like don't read any books that have come out recently or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And you're like, no, that's not what I was saying. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really hard because it's really hard to give advice sometimes in this industry because you're like, what will work for you? I have no idea because this this industry is so emotional. Yeah. And your emotional state is a very personal thing to you. Mm -hmm. So we can only tell you what generally works for us. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's a thing that you will constantly be working on as well. Like, don't compare yourself is not sort of like the law that and when you break it, you're going to all the way jail. Like that's not how (laughs) it works. By the way, all the way jail is a reference to one of my favorite podcasts. It's called I hate it, but I love it. You guys should check it out. It's really good. And now this is just an advertisement. It is. It's about head of state and hate it, but I love it. Um, No, um, but it's it's not like you you can never falter right it's it's like like we said like it's a course correction thing like just realize that it's bad if you haven't and take actions to sort of like fix it and to do better when it does happen it's going to happen it's going to happen whether you admit it to yourself or not and i think it's it's less healthy to pretend that it's not bothering you than to just admit to yourself that it is and to try to get over it sometimes you have to let yourself sit in those uncomfortable emotions in order to get through them in, in a kind of a like it gets better kind of way, I can say with a bit of confidence that there have definitely been moments since I like debuted and have now I'm like in it that I am so busy with my own stuff that I am not paying attention to what other people are doing mm-hmm. just because I can't. Like yeah. I don't have the time to do it. Yeah. And it's great. The, the moments when I come out of those periods of time, I'm like, I feel so jazzed. Like I feel so. <laughs> I feel so jazzed. <laughs> jazzed? What? You can say that. Jazzed you sounded like an old Hollywood starlet. I feel so jazzed. <laughs> Johnny, I feel so jazzed. Let's go with that. 
That's exactly what you sounded like. Um, I do though. I feel <laughs> jazz. And I, I know I feel I feel invigorated. Whatever you want to say, whatever it is. And also the thing is, the thing that makes me feel the best is when I'm doing something that I'm so passionate about that it's un- it feels uniquely mine. And that's definitely what I'm doing with Diverse Book Fest. I I feel like one of my biggest fears was like, if I publish a book and people aren't talking about it after a while, then will I become irrelevant, right? Yeah. And will like, because there's always that drop off, right? Right after your book comes out that people start talking about the next thing that's coming out. It's like a weird, horrible aspect of our industry that we only care about the newest thing. Yeah. Oftentimes. Yeah. I had a yeah, I had a huge fear about of that because I have since I was a little kid had like a big fear of abandonment of like people just not caring about me. Like your books aren't the only thing that define you, even within publishing itself. Yeah, you can have other things that you're passionate about. You can you know you can become like involved in certain types of advocacy, which is kind of where D- Diverse Book Fest came out of for me. Or you can be involved in mentorship, or you can be involved in like, you know, just different programs that are really cool that you find passion within, or like other avenues of writing. You know, I know a lot of people who have gone on to write graphic novels like you, Clarabelle, or gone on to write scripts or gone on to write for video games. And, and they're still around, but, and you might not, you might not see them come out with books as often, but they're still super integrated in the community because they have these other things that they're passionate about. And I think that that's really important, like the diversifying your portfolio pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love doing the podcast because it's something that is publishing adjacent, obviously, and we get to talk about stuff, but I feel like people come up to me more about the podcast than anything else that I do every event that I go to, there will be at least one person like, I love write or die. And it's a way for me to sort of stay connected to the community um, and and make something that I'm really proud of that is not sort of dependent on anyone else. And I'm not waiting for the podcast to get a star review, even though somebody did do an actual full review of one of our episodes, which I think is the funniest, cutest thing ever. It made me so happy. It, it was, was so such cute. a cute review. It. it was like a book review, but for just one of our episodes. It was so <laughs> cute. Um, And also, like, the very surreal moment of realizing, like, the way that I feel about podcasters and how their voices are in my ears and I feel like they're friends, people have about us. <laughs> so weird. And then when they hear us speaking in real life, they're like, this is very strange for me. <laughs> I would like for everyone from now on, when you listen to Write or Die, just stare at a photo of me and Clarabelle so that you can imagine our faces talking. (laughs) That's very weird. Don't do that. (laughs) I'm like worried. There's like one person with like art pictures like all over like this one room in their house and they're like, it's exactly what I've been doing. (laughs) Oh, no. Is it Peter? It is Peter. He's doing that right now. No, but yeah, no, it's great, and the and and that's great too, though, because I kind of like the idea that I'm interacting with people on a level more than just my writing, because my writing is really only just one aspect of me. Yeah, and it's a very limited aspect of me. If if 
to be fair, because, you know, it's just one book or one story or hopefully multiple stories in the future. But I, I, there's so much more to me <laughs> than yeah. the stories I write. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and I think that's an important thing that we always sort of talk about. I think that when you put all of your, I described it to a friend the other day, putting all of your basket, all of your hopes and like all of your dreams into a basket made of ice when, <laughs> when publishing is the only thing that you have, you know, um, you have to get things that you love to do outside of publishing. And even if you say, I'm not good at anything else, you don't have to be good at it. You don't have to monetize it. You can do something that you just enjoy. And I really feel like in the moments that I have pushed myself to do that and to find those things that sort of fulfill me and have nothing to do with the book world, I have been happier and I've had a more balanced life. So I definitely recommend that as well. If you're struggling with comparison do something where you're not going to be comparing yourself with your book peers yeah where it's just you I think that's a I think that's a really great that's really great advice and and as long as you're comfortable with it share more sharing more of yourself with people like let them see you as like a unique entity and it's harder to compare you to other people because mm-hmm. like you're so complex and nuanced to your readership now that they would it wouldn't cross their mind to compare you easily with other people Yeah, for sure. And I think part of that is like really cultivating your self-confidence and just believing in yourself and being your own best cheerleader. Like it is okay to believe that you are awesome. It is okay Mm -hmm. for you to be proud of yourself. Don't be an arrogant person, but you can certainly be proud. And I think sometimes, especially for writers of color, children of immigrants, immigrants themselves, it's beat into us to be very humble and to downplay our accomplishments, especially if you're, you're a woman. But I think that you have to sort of undo a lot of that in order to, to sort of just be okay with celebrating your accomplishments and, and being proud of yourself and saying, I'm pretty great and I'm talented and I'm deserving of these things that I work so hard for. There's absolutely nothing wrong with giving yourself those, um, there's that sort of self praise. It it can be really good for your for your self esteem, and it can help you to realize, like, yes, there might be people who have things that I hope for one day or that I don't have. Maybe I'm upset about it, but I'm still really proud of myself because I've accomplished things that I set out to do, and I'm a great person. And I think you just have to constantly be reminding yourself of that. Yeah, I think so too. I think that uh, that loving yourself, which is some, which is a lesson that BTS taught us (laughs) i mean did bts make that album for nothing are you gonna not love yourself after they did that for you i mean are you gonna crap all over bts's hard work wow how dare you what's my favorite one's name rm yeah you love RM. are you gonna disrespect rm's dimples that way i refuse (laughs) to let you have you seen his dimples they are iconic (laughs) (laughs) they are amazing they really are he's the cutest smile ever (laughs) It's so cute. Oh my god. <laughs> so what is this becoming now? Just this like is, it's like a BTS. Band. This is the BTS podcast. Yeah. We'd this have the, so many this... more listeners. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yes, come to us, BTS fans. Army. Come to us. We are here for you. We're gonna embrace you. Oh man. We'll 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 pet you close. I'll call you by cute little Korean pet names. Oh, that's oh, so cute. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what she's saying, but 
I approve. <laughs> I, I was calling. I was calling them um, our puppies. <laughs> <laughs> For Luceli Luna, ghosts are more than just the family business. Shortly before Halloween, Luceli and her best friend Sid cast a spell that accidentally awakens malicious spirits wreaking havoc throughout St. Augustine. Together, they must join forces with Sid's witch grandmother Babette and her tubby tabby chunk to fight the haunting head-on and reverse the curse to save the town and Luceli's firefly spirit before it's too late. With the family dynamics of Coco and action-packed adventure of Ghostbusters, Clarabel A. Ortega delivers both a thrillingly spooky and delightfully sweet debut novel with Ghost Squad, coming April 7, 2020 from Scholastic. Pre-order today at buyghostsquad.com. This week's guest is Marie Rutkowski. She is a New York Times bestselling author of several novels for children and young adults. She grew up in Illinois as the oldest of four children and has lived in Moscow, Prague, and Paris. She holds degrees from the University of Iowa and Harvard University and is now a professor of English literature at Brooklyn College, where she teaches Shakespeare, children's literature, and fiction writing. She lives in Brooklyn with her family and two cats, Cloud and Firefly. Hey, Marie, how are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for coming on. We're so excited. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on. So full disclosure, Clarabel and I are huge stands. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that, that exists. We will try to be normal human beings now. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, in, do you mind telling us? like how you first fell in love with writing, how you got your first agent, how you sold your first book, all that fun stuff? Yeah, of course. I, I think like a lot of people, I fell in love with writing because I had fallen in love with reading. I grew up in a pretty sleepy town where there wasn't much to do. And I was lucky enough to live maybe a few blocks away from the library. And so my summers growing up, pretty much consisted of me every day walking to the library and walking home with a stack of books. And it was wonderful. I grew up pre-internet, for which I am forever grateful, um, even though the internet has brought us many joys, including this podcast. Oh, um, yay. <laughs> yeah, I just, I loved reading books by Tamora Pierce and uh, Jane Yolen and uh, I read Marion Zimmer Bradley's Miss of Avalon way before I should have. I mean, <laughs> there's so much uh, adult material in that that probably uh, my 11-year-old self should not have found. <laughs> but it was really reading that brought me to the point of wanting to be a writer. And I wanted to be a writer ever since I was small. It's one of the reasons that I went to the University of Iowa, though I did not go there as a graduate student, which is what the MFA program is most renowned for. But um, rather, I went there as an undergraduate. Somewhere along the line, as an undergraduate, I became really invested in Shakespeare and Renaissance literature and the dream of becoming a professor and writing in an academic sort of way. And I had set creative writing aside and, in fact, did not write creatively all throughout graduate school, where I... I went to become a professor and to write a dissertation, not to write a novel. But in my last year of graduate school, I was living in London 
and had very few friends there beyond my gas fireplace and a very wide array of differently flavored chips and <laughs> constant marathons of friends and the British Library. I would go there every day. My life essentially revolved around researching at the British Library. But one day when I was at the British Library, I um, just was sort of dreamily thinking and happened to come up with the idea for what became my first novel, which is for children younger than YA readers, uh, mm -hmm. called uh, The Cabinet of Wonders. And I, because I hadn't written creatively in so long, I felt really scared about whether or not I could even do it. And thankfully, I had a friend named Neil, Neil Mukherjee, actually, who's an adult literary writer. And I told him the idea for the book, and he said, Marie, you must drop everything and write this book. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful to him because I'm not sure that I would have done it without that vote of confidence. And so I did. I wrote my first book the summer after I graduated from with my doctorate. And then the, the next fall, I began sending out query letters. And I... I did it the old fashioned way where I looked up various agents and I saw whom they represented. And I just looked for agents that represented writers whose work I felt was like mine. And I cold queried them. And one day, uh, Charlotte Sheedy, who she, she had uh, an assistant named Meredith Caffell, who's now, who went on to become an agent uh, in her own right. And the two of them contacted me and just said, we want to see the whole novel. because I'd sent only the first few chapters. And so I, I sent it. They, they wanted it. They wanted me. And I was thrilled. It was one of the happiest moments of my life. Oh, yay. That's such a cool story. I love that. I love that, too. And also kind of it's it is interesting. So many people who like have queried in like the last three years are like, well, I did Pitch Wars or I did Pit Mad. And I, I sometimes I think, what would I have done before that? Um, I honestly would have been completely lost. <laughs> I need people to like just show me the way. So I really respect that you like took it upon yourself to go and look in the back of books and even thought of that because I would have never thought of that. But it's so smart. It makes so much sense. It's a great way to go too. Yeah. So you're one of one of the series that actually. I have to admit the first series I read of yours was The Winner's Curse. How did you, I, and I know that it's kind, it's, it's supposed to be kind of loosely based on the conflict between the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire, right? Uh, or yeah. am I wrong? Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, it's, it's inspired by the period of history when Rome had conquered Greece. Yeah. So how did you, how did you come up with that? And how did you decide to kind of write a book kind of based on that time, period in time? When I was an undergraduate, I took an art class that was about ancient art, about uh, Etruscan, Greek, and Roman art. And I remember my professor saying that the Romans had revered the Greeks for being in some ways culturally superior to them, for being poets and philosophers, for having wonderful drama and essentially artistry. But then you know, the Roman Empire began to grow in terms of military might, and they used that strength to conquer the people that they had felt culturally inferior to before. Mm -hmm. And that 
what ended up happening was that the Romans enslaved the Greeks and installed many of them in their households to teach their children, to recite poetry over dinner. And I was interested then in that very culturally fraught dynamic that my professor had explained. But it was just the seed planted in the back of my head for years. And the origin of the book, The Winner's Curse, really came from the term, The Winner's Curse, which I had learned a few years ago from a friend who's an economist. And it describes what happens when at an auction, you win the auction, but only because you've bet more than what everybody else has decided the item is worth. So you've won, but also in that moment, respective, irrespective of whatever might happen in the future and whatever that item might be worth 10 years from now, in that very moment, you've won, but you've also lost because you've overpaid. And I thought The Winner's Curse would be a great title. And I tried to think about what could be up for auction that might cost a character's sense of self or, or heart, would cost the character emotionally, not just financially. And so I thought, well, what if the item up for auction were not a thing, but rather a person? What would it cost my character then? And that question connected with what I had learned previously about the Roman and Greek empire. Uh, and that's how the story came about. I love that. And what an amazing title as well. Just so, just, just, just grabs you immediately. Yeah, it it really is. It's, it's, it's such a unique title. And then it's interesting before you know what it means. And then when I was reading the passage where that she kind of, where Keshel kind of like talks about what I think it's Keshel who talks about like what the winner's curse kind of means. I was like, Oh my God, there's so many layers, which I always (laughs) like (laughs) in anything that I read. Um, But have you ever heard the way some people kind of do an analysis of Kestrel as a character where they say that, where they claim that winner's curse is actually a story of an anti-hero learning, like learning that she's wrong and becoming like a true hero by the end. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I think I've heard versions of that. And I think it's true. I mean, she is morally culpable in so many ways in in that in that first book, um, especially. But uh, a part of her journey as a character over three books is to reckon with problems that she has inherited, but also perpetuated in her culture. Yeah, I've, I've heard people say that, like, The Winner's Trilogy is actually a fairly detailed and complete redemption arc of a character, which I actually super duper agree with as a fan of the trilogy. Oh, thank you. I I love the idea that it's read that way. Yeah, well, and I also kind of think that it's really nice to realize that a person who is so imperfect as Kestrel can still be seen as the heroine the whole entire way through because then it shows us that we're not perfect either, but we can still be our, the heroes of our own stories. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm certainly imperfect in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> How did it feel from, from moving from your, your debut into another series, not knowing like if the same audience would, potentially like it or how it would be marketed differently or anything like that 
By debut, do you mean the Cabinet of Wonders, my middle grade, or do you mean the yeah. Winner's Curse? You're, yeah. Well, also, yeah. you now you're moving on to what is technically its own story, but is tangentially related to the Winner's Trilogy. So you can talk about that, too, as well, if you wanted to. I, think I will talk about that, just because... Because I think I had more of a concern, and so maybe it's more interesting for your listeners <laughs> to hear okay. you discuss than shifting from middle grade to YA. Because even though The Midnight Lie is YA, just as The Winner's Curse trilogy is, and even though The Midnight Lie is does take place in the same world that I've created in that previous trilogy, it's a big departure in that instead of writing a straight romance, um, as I did in the Winner's Curse books, I've written a queer romance in The Midnight Lie. And I, I had recently come out as queer and I felt nervous about writing a book that felt so personal and nervous about how it would be received, whether people would like it. So I guess I felt more vulnerable switching from the Winner's Curse books to Midnight Live than I did uh, in terms of any other shift in my writing career. Yeah, I I, I, th- I can I sort of relate to switching between middle grade and YA and like when it gets personal like that, it can it can be a, a real challenge as well. But you, you do both very well. <laughs> Thank you. So would you be able to um, just give our listeners a quick synopsis of Midnight Lie? Sure. I... Well, I wanted to write a very different kind of heroine than Kestrel. Um, Kestrel is so... She's not just intelligent, which my main character, Niram, in Midnight Light, she is also intelligent, but they've lived very different kinds of lives, whereas Kestrel's has been very privileged, and where she knows that she is powerful. Niram, on the other hand, in The Midnight Lie, which takes place about 20 years in the future of the Winner's Curse books and on an island that no one has ever heard of, Niram is somebody who's been really disenfranchised. She is a member of the lowest class of society and lives essentially behind, in a community that is encircled by a wall. And nobody knows why this particular class of people lives behind a wall, but they are carefully controlled. They're not allowed to taste sweet things or to dress in nice clothes. They are not allowed to leave the ward that is protected by the wall. And they are also subject to punishment if they even step a little bit out of line. And Niram herself is, she's an inherently good person, but is also trying really hard to stay within the lines of her society because she knows that the punishment can be really great. You can be arrested, you can be put in prison and never heard from again. You could lose your limbs, your eyelashes sometimes. Oh no, what? (laughs) I love how that's the one I reacted to, not my eyelashes. without other eyelashes being cut off yeah that sounds incredibly unpleasant (laughs) yeah well what's maybe even more unpleasant is that those eyelashes then get made into fake eyelashes that the higher class people could wear oh my gosh i guess i yes i was interested in writing this book where my main character 
although she is very talented and intelligent and has powers of her own, she has completely shut those things off from herself because to use any of those skills is really dangerous for her. And the book begins when she does step out of line and is thrown in prison because of it and meets a strange traveler who is in fact from Heron, Aaron's country. And this person, whose name is Sid, tempts Niram to want more for herself and, and to find out whether rumors that this island holds magic are true. Wow. I could just listen to you talk about this book for the next seven hours. It sounds <laughs> so great, like so compelling. I really, I really like the, how you, the way that it sounds like you explore your world and your stories are so complex because like everything has like a domino effect on how it influences each other. And so it just kind of feels very complete. Like, I, I felt like that in The Winner's Curse, too, that, like, no element of the world that was introduced was, like, an, was an offhand introduction. It was more of, like, a, this is important, and I'll show you why eventually. So there's, like, so much faith in the narrative that way. And so it makes me, as a reader, feel fulfilled. Because I'm like, especially if I get it, I'm like, yes, I knew it. I knew that was going to happen. So it makes me feel smart. <laughs> yeah, you are smart. <laughs> Thank you. If you don't mind, I kind of want to go a little bit step back to where you were saying that there's definitely aspects of your own personal life that you decided to incorporate into your new story. And um, Clarabel and I talk about this all the time on the podcast is that um, it's it's a time in publishing where telling our individual narratives and talking about our individual identities is being celebrated in a way that has never happened before in publishing and how we are so excited to embrace it. And I was just wondering, because you did start writing a little while ago and things have changed um, over the past few years, if like how you feel about, you know, writing things that might just be a little bit more personal to you um, and how you've decided to incorporate those things into your writing. Well, I think that, as I mentioned earlier, it, it feels riskier, but I don't know if you saw the Oscars when Parasite won. Mm-hmm. Yes. We sure, we sure <laughs> yes. did, especially Kat. Yeah, I saw it through tears. <laughs> it. it was an amazing moment. And I loved when the director, uh, Bong Joon-ho, said that, and I'm not going to be able to quote him exactly. But in fact, I think he was quoting Scorsese when he said that the personal, that the personal is the most artistic. I wish mm -hmm. I could remember it exactly. But he really leaned into the thought that it was important to tell a story in a way that felt personal to you. Um, and obviously, this is not, Parasite is not about the director. But I can still sense that the things that he cared about, such as class and the longing for more and the tenderness between family and the, well, I don't want to talk too much about Parasite, um, which is an <laughs> incredible film that everybody should see. But I have the feeling that he did bring what he personally cared about to that movie. So I think that that risk of being personal does have a reward. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think 
it totally makes sense. The idea of like when you put more of yourself and more of your identity into your writing than any type of perceived rejection would hurt all the more. Yeah. Um, True. But I, I also think like, it's so, it's so empowering when people, when people come to you and say like, I, I didn't see myself before and now I have because of something that you wrote or something that you said. And that means like so much and it's so, so impactful. And it's such a wonderful time that we're in that people can say that to creators now. I entirely agree. And one of the reasons why I wrote The Midnight Lives, because I remembered when The Winner's Kiss came out, I went to the Red Balloon Bookshop near Minneapolis uh, for an event. And one of the readers, a young woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I love that in the character of Rochard, we have a gay character. It's so important to me, the, the reader was saying, to see him there. But where where are the queer women? Mm. What books can you recommend to me that show queer women? And of course, there are several. I mean, Melinda Lowe is um, you know, a trailblazer in YA. I, I mean, there, there are many wonderful authors who write queer characters, like Catherine Locke. But I felt like I wanted to write a book for her. I felt like I wanted to add to, to the body of, of YA fiction that features queer women characters. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, it's so much, and it's still hard, even though there's one representation, it's hard when there's like so few because people are so nuanced and complicated. So until we have like hundreds and hundreds of, hundreds of books that represent these marginalized identities it's not going to be enough so I'm I'm so excited that you were able to add the midnight lie to these amazing books that already exist yes we need way more and more support for those kinds of books as well because I feel like they're left behind in comparison with you know other um kind of queer representation for whatever reason so do it publishing yeah and 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 I I also to be fair like you know you are such a a loved author already because of the winner's curse and people really admire you and admire your writing I hope I'm not embarrassing you or anything but this is this is a truth fact okay so um the fact that such a respected and and talented writer with such a with such a loyal fandom is speaking this truth and creating such a lovely story um, out of a lived reality is it's so meaningful and it makes it makes a huge impact and it makes a huge difference and and I for one and definitely a, a reader that is really grateful for you for doing this <laughs> that means so much to me thank you 18 year old Gumi Young has a secret she's a Gumiho a nine-tailed fox who must devour the energy of men in order to survive. Because so few believe in the old tales anymore, and with so many evil men no one will miss, the modern city of Seoul is the perfect place to hide and hunt. Miang's life is upended when she kills a Dokebi, a murderous goblin, just to save the life of a human boy. But after Miang saves Jihoon's life, the two develop a tenuous friendship that blooms into romance, setting them down a path that will soon force Miang to choose between her immortal life and Jihoon's. Wicked Fox finds inspiration in Korean mythology, culture, and Korean dramas. It's been called a vibrant debut novel that employs the Korean genre's conventions for an utterly original take on the young adult fantasy by Entertainment Weekly 
and Fresh and Fast Pace by School Library Journal Review. Wicked Fox is out now from Penguin Random House and is available wherever books are sold. So the next question, sorry, I'm like all over the place. I have so many emotions. Um, on the same vein of the fact that like you've had some pretty great, uh, two really great and beloved series come out already and you're coming out with a new book do you have any advice for any newer writers who listen to the podcast about how to build and create a sustainable author career I think that there's so many different paths I mean I think that I'm really lucky that my publishing house Macmillan and the imprint FSG in particular has been supportive of the different books that I wanted to write and I've stayed at one house the entire time. And that can be a way to build your career, to be loyal to your house so long as they are good to you, as mine has been to me. But there are other authors who are very successful doing a whole bunch of different kinds of projects. Like, uh, you know, Danielle Clayton um, has, um, a, she's a wonderful writer and has done so many different kinds of things, including having her own book packaging company, Cake Literary, with Sona Charapotra, uh, who's also her collaborator and also an incredibly talented writer. And I mean, they did Tiny Pretty Things, which is going to be a Netflix show. Um, but then, you know, they've also done fantasy projects. And I think that uh, and have worked with different editors. So I think that I've just outlined maybe two different kinds of paths to building a su successful career, but I know that there are more. And I'm not so sure that anything that I said has been helpful aside from <laughs> There's no one way to develop your career. I mean, that's valid though. That's good advice. I think that's great advice. And it also sort of ties into our... Um, pre-chat discussion on not comparing like that's a good thing to remember that everyone's path and everyone's journey looks way different um I think that's a big part of it definitely I mean there and there are people who have breakout books well into their careers too I think that sometimes new writers have this impression that if you don't you don't hit the list uh in your debut year that people will forget about you but that's not true there are often writers who are just publishing book after book and growing their audience, um, having setbacks, and then they write the one book that really makes people see them in a whole new light. I love that. That's so, that's so encouraging. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and with our uh, listeners. So we have one final thing to ask you. And so everyone who comes on the Write or Die podcast tells us, either their most embarrassing publishing related story oh or <laughs> something <laughs> or something they wish they'd known before they started. So it's your choice. You can do either or you can do both. It's totally up to you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, maybe I mean I've I think that I've probably tried so hard to block all the embarrassing moments from my mind. <laughs> Bringing to the surface naturally, I do remember um, meeting Susan Cooper at a conference and saying, I memorized the poems in The Darkest Rising when I was a child and I can still recite them now. <laughs> oh, that's so cute, though. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think that it's, I think it's probably universally true 
that every writer is also a fangirl or fanboy or fan they mm-hmm. at heart. Yeah. Um, just, you know, ready to turn into a pile of adoring mush in front of somebody. So I definitely <laughs> have had those moments. I don't know if those count as embarrassing or not. I like that. Yeah. They feel real embarrassing in the moment. Like, <laughs> yeah. When it's yeah. happening. Yeah. <laughs> when it's happening. But it's also so nice. Like I, when I met one of my like hero writers, like it was really funny because I was so nervous to talk to her and she was actually crying because she had just met her her hero writer and it just I I I was like oh no are you okay and like suddenly like I was the one like comforting her um so I I really like moments like that shows like at heart we're all just we all just love books so much we do we do (laughs) um so Marie thank you so so much for coming on the writer die podcast it was such a pleasure to have you I don't think that either of us will recover from this anytime soon um <laughs> our reader our, our listeners are going to love this episode um so thank you so much and could you tell us uh, where people could follow you online or keep up with what's on you oh um I'm on Instagram it's just my name Marie Rutkowski and I think my Twitter handle is the same Marie Rutkowski so those are Probably the best ways to follow me, but I'm more on Instagram than on Twitter. Perfect. So, and we'll link that in the show notes as well so that um, everyone can go follow Marie. Thank you so, so much um, again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a review, and while you're at it, be sure to pick up Wicked Fox by me, Kat Cho, and Ghost Squad by Clarabel A. Ortega. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.